guys doing? Good. Growing up as a kid in the 90s, that's right, the 90s, watched my fair share of those uh, cops and robbers movies. You remember those? They all seem to end the same, don't they? It ends with a chase. You know the chase? You know what I'm talking about? So the bad guys are running for their lives, trying to escape the good guys. In the end, they bump up to a wall of cops and then to another wall. And before you know it, they're, they're hemmed in on every side. That's when the megaphone blares. This is the police. We have you surrounded. Right? Do you know what it's like to be surrounded? In our scripture passage for today, God's people are surrounded. It's the inverse of the famous good guy, bad guy scene. God's people, presumably the good guys, are surrounded by God's enemies. More specifically, the kingdom of Judah is surrounded by the kingdom of Assyria. So I ask you again, do you know what it's like to be surrounded? Well, probably not in the same way as God's people in 700 BC, and we'll get to that in a minute. But surely each of us knows what it's like to be surrounded by enemies, if we define enemies broadly. Let's define enemy as anything opposed to your well-being. An enemy is anything opposed to your well-being. This follows the Apostle Paul's line of thought in Ephesians 6. We aren't fighting against human enemies, he writes, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. If we understand enemies in this way, knowing that they can be invisible as well, then surely you know what it's like to be surrounded by enemies. Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by the enemy of sickness and pain? Surrounded by a diagnosis that tempts you to despair? Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by the enemy of temptation? Trapped in a particular sin habit or controlled by a particular vice? Maybe it's anger or envy or greed? Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by the enemy of misery? <laughs> Trapped in a miserable job or stuck in a conflicted marriage and you're unsure how to get unstuck? Perhaps you can identify with the most popular form of misery today, exhaustion. You feel hemmed in on every side by the culture of busyness and hurry. Busyness and hurry, busyness and hurry. And just as your muscles would eventually give out if you walked on a treadmill 24-7, so your soul is exhausted, terribly exhausted. From a pace of life, you feel like you did not choose, but have little control over changing. Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by the enemy of doubt? Maybe doubt in yourself, doubt in others close to you, doubt perhaps in God. My friends, God's word for us today talks back to the enemies that surround us. 
Our enemies taunt us, shouting as if through a megaphone, sometimes from the inside out. The noise all too often crowds out the gentle voice of the Spirit of God. But God's word today talks back to our enemies. God will not be outdone. If we pay attention, we may find in God's word for us today our deliverance, our salvation, our real-life rescue from the very real enemies that surround you and I, whatever those enemies may be called, whatever force present in our lives, opposed to our well-being, opposed to our shalom as God defines it. So may we approach God's word today with even a mustard seed of faith, and God will set us free. We begin with a prayer based on Psalm 25. Pray with me. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture today is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet of God around the 700s B.C. The reading begins with a bit of history and background, and let me just warn you. In the first three verses, I count 16 references to people and places that most of us know nothing about. So I'm going to pause after the opening, give some explanation, and then we'll continue to hear God's word. So Isaiah 36, verse 1, reading from the Common English Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Assyria's king Sennacherib marched against all of Judah's fortified cities and captured them in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. That's 701 B.C. Assyria's king sent his field commander from Lachish together with a large army to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. He stood at the water channel of the upper pool, which is on the road to the field where clothes are washed. Hilkiah's son, Eliakim, who was the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and Asaph's son, Joah the recorder, went out to them. Let's stop there quick to get our bearings. Did you hear all the references that no one knows anything about? <laughs> I won't go through them all, but here are the basics we should all try to understand to know the context of God's word that will soon come to us. In 701 B.C., can you say, say that with me? Say 701. 701. We do that game with Lily all the time. <laughs> 701 B.C., the kingdom of Assyria was taking over the world. And then, over 200 years before that, the covenant people of God, these are the people with whom God established a special relationship for blessing the world. These people of God, they had a divorce. Israel... God's covenant people split into two separate kingdoms. You remember this? The northern kingdom retains the name Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. All right? It'd be like if the United States of America became the divided states of America and split in two politically. So that is what happened between Israel and Judah 200 years prior to the events of our text. Now, Fast forward to 722 B.C. Say 722 B.C. 
I'm working hard to make this not boring, guys. 20 years prior to the events of today's reading, the kingdom of Israel in the north was conquered and captured by Assyria. And in God's perspective, this happened, and this is important, this happened, Israel was captured because of their faithlessness toward God and their injustice toward neighbors. Will the same fate overtake Judah in the south? That is the question everyone is asking in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. So all that's in the background of our text. And all the evidence points in the affirmative. All the political analysts say, yes, Jerusalem will be destroyed, along with their beautiful temple. By all appearances, Judah has no hope. Assyria has already taken over 46 of their fortified cities, in other words, Assyria is 46 and 0 against the kingdom of Judah. So things did not bid well for God's people in Jerusalem, the last city standing. So a lot of this history, our scripture explains that the king of Assyria sends his field commander, some translations read Rabshakeh, that's the official Syrian title for this commander, the king sends him, together with a large army, to Jerusalem, the capital city. They're sent to flex their muscles and to intimidate this pitiful, weak-looking crowd in Jerusalem. And you can imagine the megaphone blaring, This is Assyria! We have you surrounded! Now the folks from Judah's side, who go out to meet this powerful army, they're three top officials from Judah. Uh, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joab. I would not uh, choose those names for my son if we ever had a son. Now the contrast between these, these two groups is sharp, right? On the one hand, you have the world's most powerful army sent by the world's most powerful man. And on the other hand, you have three guys from the admin department of Judah. It's in the text. Did you read that? An administrator, a secretary, and recorder. No offense to admin departments, but I think we could all agree that this would count as a legitimate threat to national security. With this context in mind, with God's people in Jerusalem surrounded on all sides by a powerful army, we return to God's word in Isaiah 36, verse 13. Then the field commander stood up and shouted in Hebrew, so that everyone could understand. He shouted in Hebrew at the top of his voice, Listen to the message of the great king, Assyria's king. Thus says the king, Don't let Hezekiah lie to you. He won't be able to rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust the Lord by saying, The Lord will certainly rescue us. This city won't be handed over to Assyria's king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Because this is what Assyria's king says, surrender to me and come out. Then each of you will eat from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own well until I come to take you to a land just like your land. It will be a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah fool you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Did any of the other gods of the nations save their lands from the power of Assyria's king? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, 
Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Did they rescue Samaria from my power? Which one of the gods from those country has rescued their land from my power? Will the Lord save Jerusalem from my power? We'll stop there in God's word for now. I submit to you that the voice of Assyria's field commander is the voice of realism. It's the voice of realism that whispers to us all. For some of us, the voice is loud, shouted through a megaphone into the ears of our quaking hearts. Come on now, you can't possibly believe that you'll get through this unharmed. This is reality. We have you surrounded. The pain and grief will last forever, so don't try to work through it. We have you surrounded. The sickness will surely end in death, and death means separation forever. We have you surrounded. The sin is unbeatable, so don't try to get free. Just manage your sin problem as best as you can, and be sure to hide it from others to minimize the consequences. We have you surrounded. Have you ever heard the voice of realism? Have you been seduced by the practical logic of the enemy. Your misery will never end, he speaks. You'll never find that relationship. You'll never find that job. So just deal with it. Your miserable marriage, your miserable job, your miserable pace of life is just the way it is. There's no point in trying to improve it. Just try to make the best of life by surrounding yourself with material comforts. Did you notice the appeal to material comforts in verses 16 and 17? Surrender to me and come out, he says. Assyria will provide a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And finally, the voice of realism shouts, there is no way out of doubt. God may be real, but you can't be sure. There's no scientific proof. Even if God were real, which God? And how do you know if that God is good? if that God is reliable, if that God can be trusted. So just leave this religion business alone and find your higher purpose elsewhere. This is Assyria. We have you surrounded. My friends, that's the spirit behind the voice of Assyria's commander. It's the voice of quote-unquote reality, the voice of what is, according to all common sense interpretations. The commander appeals to the common sense of Jerusalem's inhabitants as they're surrounded by an army, and he expects them to surrender. Common sense. Why would you fight it? This is Assyria, the most powerful force on earth, and we have you surrounded. So give up, surrender, admit defeat. You don't stand a chance. And by the way, stop listening to your king Hezekiah. He's a dreamer. He's got his head in the sky. He doesn't see the facts. He d don't listen to his lies. He's going to get you hurt. He can't rescue you. Neither can his God. Don't let him fool you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Come on now. We're 46-0 and 0 against you guys. Was there any God able to rescue the other cities from our power? That is the taunts, the speech of the field commander. So I ask again, do you know what it's like to be surrounded by people or circumstances or forces of evil that oppose your well-being? If so, 
Maybe you've also heard the voice of realism in the midst of it. Give up. Surrender. Admit defeat. Your God can't deliver you from this one. Your God, you can't rely on him to get you through this one. Come on now, put your hands up. Wave the white flag. Take the material comforts you need to fake your way through life. Here, take some bread. Here, take some wine. It'll help numb the pain of a life lived away from the house of the Lord. How do we respond to the voice of despair? The voice of despair that speaks to each of us sometime in our lives, especially when we're going through trying seasons. How do we respond to the voice of despair? And where is God in the midst of such despair? These are the questions answered as we continue our scripture reading. I can't wait to get to them. Isaiah, ch chap Isaiah chapter 37, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. When King Hezekiah heard this, this report, he ripped his clothes, covered himself with mourning clothes, and went to the Lord's temple. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests. He sent them to the prophet Isaiah, Amos' son. And they were all wearing mourning clothes. They said to him, Hezekiah says this, Today is a day of distress, punishment, and humiliation. It's as, if, it's as if children are ready to be born, but there's no strength to see it through. Perhaps the Lord your God has heard all of the words of the field commander who was sent by his master, Assyria's king. He insulted the living God. Perhaps he will punish him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Offer up a prayer for those few people who still survived. When King Hezekiah's servants got to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say this to your master. The Lord says this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid at the words you heard, which the officers of Assyria's king have used to insult me. I'm about to mislead him. So when he hears a rumor, he'll go back to his own country. Then I'll have him cut down by the sword in his own land. This is the word of the Lord. So how do we respond to the voice of despair? How did Judah's king Hezekiah respond? He ripped his clothes, covered himself in itchy sackcloth, and made a beeline for the Lord's temple. In other words, he humbled himself. He repented from his own failures as king, and he went directly to God. Now, Hezekiah didn't have to respond like this. There are some other options he had. He could have strategized in the face of despair. He could have sought wild solutions to the problem at hand. Instead, he went to the face of God in prayer. He could have consulted with his administration first. Instead, he consults first with his God. He could have planned an escape route, found the exit sign for his own survival, leaving his people to die. Instead, he dies to himself, the death of the ego, and therein he comes alive to God in prayer. Now, Hezekiah's prayer reflex, I'd like to call it, his prayer reflex 
in the midst of all the evil surrounding him. It's an example for us to follow. This prayer reflex, I believe, is the only response that will get us anywhere in our despair. When we are surrounded by enemies, when we are trapped, when we're hemmed in on every side, I believe there's but one response that will make a difference. Humbly go to God in prayer. Confess your brokenness. Lament your pain. Repent from past mistakes. Die to yourself. And therein, come alive to God in prayer like you never have before. That's the first thing Hezekiah does. It's this prayer reflex. Going to God in prayer in the midst of being surrounded by enemies. He does one more thing too. He not only enters God's presence in a spirit of humility and repentance, but what else? He calls his top advisors and he issues an order. Go to the preacher. Go to the preacher. Go to Isaiah, the prophet. We need to hear a word from the Lord. And ask him to pray for us, too. So, Hezekiah has a word with God in prayer. Then Hezekiah searches for a word from God through the prophet. Prayer and prophet. Talk with God and talk from God. That, my friends, is how we survive. And it's no small thing to survive. That's how we survive our enemies, whatever those enemies may be called. But it's also how we thrive. It's how we live deep in the kingdom of God. This is the double helix of our life with God. Scripture and prayer. Prayer and scripture. Lord, hear our prayer. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to survive and even thrive in this one life you've been given, my friends, I believe with all my being that this is the only way. It's the Jesus way. You must nurture a deep life of prayer with God, and you must humbly submit to God's word, revealed most fully in Jesus Christ. That's what Hezekiah does when surrounded by his enemies. And now it's God's turn to act. How does God respond? God responds as God always responds when we come to him with humble hearts. God won't despise a heart that is broken and crushed, Psalm 51 tells us. In response to our aching, humble hearts, God saves. God delivers. God rescues. Or as Psalm 34 puts it, on every side, the Lord's messenger protects those who honor God, and he delivers them prophet Isaiah gives this word of the Lord to the trembling King Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah begins, which contrasts sharply to the previous, thus says the king. Thus says the Lord, don't be afraid, my friends, don't be afraid at the words you heard, which the officers of a serious king have used to insult me. I'm about to mislead him, and he's going to get out of your get out of your city, and then he'll get, his, he'll get his as well. Against all odds, my friends, despite the fact that Assyria was 46-0 against the kingdom of Judah, in the face of all common sense realism, God saves Jerusalem 
and 701 BC. The difference between what is and what will be is none other than God. God is the difference between what will be and what is. God is the difference maker. God was the difference maker back then, even in the face of Jerusalem's doom and despair. And God is still the difference maker right now for you and your family and whatever situation you face. Do you believe that? God is the difference maker, my friends, for your marriage and for your job. God is the difference maker for your addiction and for your doubt. God is the difference maker for your hurry sickness and your tired soul. God is the difference maker for your illness, both physical and mental. And ultimately, ultimately, when it's time for your body to enter its final rest, God is the difference maker over death itself. Dying, Christ destroyed our death. Rising, Christ restores our life. In baptism, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. So don't be afraid, people of Heartland. Don't be afraid at the words you hear from the accuser. Don't be afraid, people of Heartland, when the devil tries to get you down. Don't be afraid, beloved people of Heartland, when the enemy insults you, intimidates you, and tries to pull you down into the pit of despair. Instead, open your spiritual eyes and behold, behold, you are not surrounded by your enemies, but what is this that we see? Behold, you are surrounded by the glorious presence of God, God who is for you, God who is with you, God who has proved all this to you by coming into the world in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who dies your death that you might obtain Christ's life. God surrounds us, friends. Amen? Make no mistake about it. God surrounds us. Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by God? If you're not quite sure, here's one more scripture passage, Isaiah 2. Steph already mentioned it before. What we see in Isaiah 2 is a fuller vision of what's to come. God has delivered Jerusalem in 701 BC, but what about all the other times? What we see in Isaiah 2 is a future, a future that is in store for all God's people. It is a future that has already broken into the present, if you can wrap your mind around that, in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Isaiah, Amos' son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let's go to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion. The Lord's word will come from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword again against nation, and they will no longer lo learn how to make war. This is the word of the Lord. 
In the days of Hezekiah, God delivers Jerusalem from their national enemies. In the days of your own life, I believe God wants to deliver you from your own enemies too. But there is coming a day when the enemy will be no more. There is coming a day when war will be no more, conflict will be no more, when justice will reign supreme, and all will go up to the Lord's mountain in the new Jerusalem. It's there, on the top of God's mountain, in God's new city, that all nations and people groups will discover that the God of love has been surrounding us all along. What is this mountain? What is this mountain of the Lord? Is it the physical mountain of Jerusalem? The earliest Christian interpreters of the Bible are all in agreement. They all say, no, it's not speaking of a physical mountain in Jerusalem. Then what is the prophecy? The consensus of the early church is well said by St. Augustine of the 4th century. In his sermon on Isaiah 2, he writes, The central place they are all coming to is Christ. Approach the mountain of Christ. Climb up the mountain, and you that climb it, do not go down it. There you will be safe. There you will be protected. Christ is your mountain of refuge. Yes, let's go to the mountain of Christ, my friends. Christ surrounds us on all sides. Do you know what it's like to be surrounded by Christ? In any and every circumstance, whether good or bad, I pray you do, and I pray I do too. So we'll close with a video of a song, a song I first heard at Hope College. It's all about Christ surrounding us.